Welcome to the Freshman Foundation Podcast, helping you make the jump from high school athletics to the collegiate level and beyond with your host, Michael Huber. Hey everyone, it's Mike Huber, founder and CEO of the Freshman Foundation and certified mental performance consultant. If you're listening to this episode, then you're likely a student athlete or family member of one. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Hopefully you find our podcast valuable. Mental performance coaching allows young athletes to show up at their best every single day by conquering distractions, pressures, and mental roadblocks through evidence-based strategies. So let's talk. You can visit my website at michaelvasinvincenthuber.com to schedule a free strategy session. Let's see if mental performance coaching is a fit for your family. Enjoy this episode, and thank you again for listening. How is Dr. Daniel Zimmett serving athletes in transition? Life transitions can be very difficult, especially if you're not prepared for them. Some of the most challenging times in my life have been during major transitions, college, marriage, parenthood, divorce. Unfortunately, I was short on the resources necessary to manage these changes and it took a toll on my life. One of the most difficult transitions of all is when elite athletes are forced to exit sport. Athletes are some of the most resilient people walking the earth, but yet they are still human. After years and years of investment into the single most important thing in an athlete's life, sport is gone in a blink of an eye and it's nearly impossible to replicate that experience. The mental health impacts can be negative and sometimes tragic. My guest on this episode, Dr. Daniel Zimmett, is a licensed psychologist and a certified mental performance consultant. Dan and his colleagues in our field of sports psychology are conducting the athlete transition study to better understand the experiences of retiring athletes on a large scale. In episode 46, Dan discusses the inspiration for conducting the athlete transition study and why its implications are so important to how we support retiring athletes. Further, Dan and I discussed the unique challenges of athletic identity and how sports psychology professionals help athletes keep things in perspective. I'm excited for this conversation. Let's build your foundation with Dr. Daniel Zimmett. Hey, Dan, how are you? Hi, good morning or afternoon. What time? (laughs) Afternoon. Good to hear from you. You know, it's funny you say that. I used to listen to uh, a podcast where the host would say, we don't say good morning or good afternoon because the guest doesn't know what time it is. So we say good day. So good day yeah. to you. <laughs> well, <laughs> so um, I guess to, to get things started, Dan, um, could you just tell me a little bit about the inspiration for the athlete transition study? Yeah. So the um, the initial meeting happened kind of serendipitously. I had mm. a young gentleman who had played football for Syracuse. And he was interested in maybe going into a career in sports psychology. Mm -hmm. And over the course of talking to him about his experience and why he was thinking about it, we discussed a subject that has come up many times in my clinical practice and my work with athletes, which is how hard it is to make the transition away from competing at elite sports Mm -hmm. and how little is known and how little supports are in place for those athletes. And what was supposed to be an hour-long meeting turned into two and a half hours. And 
I talked to a few of my colleagues who have had very similar conversations with their clientele. Mm -hmm. And we started looking into the research and realized just a lot more needs to be done, both in terms of understanding athletes and their experiences, but even more so than that, supporting them in getting the funding, the programming, and the general knowledge base about what kind of help they need and what they go through. So when did that first conversation take place? Oh, good. I mean, it has to have been maybe four or five years ago now. It led to a two-year, three-year process of uh, the five of us getting together, understanding what is available now in the current research literature, figuring out what's needed to try to move this area forward, and then formulating the study itself, the questionnaires that we developed, Mm -hmm. try to best move both uh, research understanding and also uh, our general culture as a whole um, in our awareness of what these athletes go through and what they need. And we've had the survey available for about a year now. We've had around 600 athletes complete it. Uh, We're wanting to have many, many more than that to understand as much as we can. but we're in this for the long haul, so we'll just see how that goes. Um, so in terms of, I, I don't know, responses or response rates or just a general sort of um, willingness to participate, it, do you think it's, you know, general, just um, an awareness issue, meaning like if somebody knows about it, like I took the the, the survey, right? right? I'm not an elite athlete, but there's a component of the survey that caters to people like me. Is it just because you need more awareness or do you find that there are people out there that are not willing to participate? Uh, I don't know how many people are not willing to participate. Mm. I think that everyone is busy. We have a finite amount of time. Mm -hmm. We ask for about 23 minutes, which is the average it takes to fill out the athlete survey. The one Mm -hmm. you took, which allows us to compare elite athletes health to people who never competed at the elite level only takes about 10 or 11 minutes, but that's still not insubstantial. Um, I've yet to run into someone who has been against taking the survey. I think that awareness is a big part of it, and also the knowledge that there'll be a benefit to them committing their time. I think that people can get used to volunteering their knowledge and wisdom by taking a survey and then feeling like they're just pouring a bucket of water down a well. Mm -hmm. They really need to see results. And I think the more awareness that we generate, both in terms of the study, but also what we're doing with those results and how it can actually, in a tangible way, help future athletes, I think that that's probably the key. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about the non-elite survey that I took, um, and it was very simple, um, but I think for me, the most interesting part was about traumatic brain injury. As a former high school football player, I think I was asked the question about how many times have I had a concussion, diagnosed or not. And I would say that it was probably two. Um, but it's just interesting that I don't really like think about that. So in taking the survey, I think about awareness, but not necessarily the, in the same context, I think about the awareness for myself. Like when I answered those questions, I was like, 
oh, right. I did have, I think I did have two concussions and like, what were the impacts on me? And I think there's something to be said for spending that time taking a survey just for your own benefit to really think about like where you've come from and how that can be affecting where you're at today. Yeah. You know, I really, I appreciate that insight and observation because the nature of the questions themselves that the survey asks, I think really speaks to the experience of athletes that they go through both while they're competing in that transition out of sport, trying to cope with the changes, uh, what it's like turning to people for support and access to resources. I think it is a self-reflective journey. And there may be some athletes that can be really challenging to have to revisit what might have been a very painful uh, mm -hmm. time in their life, maybe the most painful time in their life. But on the other hand, I think that that kind of self-reflection is both beneficial to a person in terms of their self-awareness, but it may also let them know how important it is to try to help future athletes to have a better experience than they did. Um, in general, I found <clears throat> athletes are hardworking, compassionate, smart people, and they're really a remarkable group. Mm -hmm. And they're willing to put themselves out there if they feel it's for the better good of the team. And their team is athletes, whether they're past, current, or future. And I think they're willing to make the commitment of um, thinking about some of these things if they feel it will come to a good end. The health piece that you suggested is really a very important question for me. And part of what makes this survey unique is we'll be able to look at whether people who never played football, people who played high school only, high school and college, high school, college professional, and for how long and what type of experience they had for their mm -hmm. health, and really look at long-term outcomes of whether there are concerns for even high school athletes in terms of their injury rates, chronic pain, sleep disturbance, mm -hmm. trauma, are there differences that we'll notice along that full spectrum? Because something that's understood, but maybe not generally known, the athletes who are most at risk of dying on the field are high school uh, athletes. Um, they are the most frequent fatal injury from head trauma victims. Um, and it's because they're in development still. Mm -hmm. They might be lighter, but the people who play in the NFL, one, they've had a lot more time training. So they really do know in better right. ways how to protect It's a them. skill issue, right? Yeah, partially. Yeah. But they're also, they also outweigh high schoolers <clears> by <throat> nearly double and hit a lot harder. Um, but they're, they're, Brain, brain stem, and bodies have more more developed, so they're better mm -hmm. able to cope. Um, so we want to know about those high schoolers also what they what they're going through. Yeah, it's it, it seems like the brain injury piece of it is pretty significant. Um, when I when I looked at your website, I it feels to me like that's it seems like it was a big driver of that conversation from the beginning in terms of understanding like what that looks like. Is that well, a fair way to put it? Well, um, cognitive issues 
gained an enormous amount of attention mm. from the CTE um, stories breaking in the 2000s, which sort of like you know, the Will Smith movie um, mm. and, um, oh my goodness, the, the, the fellow, this is embarrassing, who ended up committing suicide in jail, who was accused of murder. Um, I, I can't believe his name is slipping my mind. It's a, Aaron it's a, Hernandez. Aaron, a tra- just a tragic story in yeah. so many, you know, from the people who were murdered to his situation. It's just a very tragic situation. Yeah. But I think a lot of people look at and feel like they can directly point to head trauma as the catalyst for his behavior. Um, and there's been a growing body of research on that end, but there's a lot of nuance to it. Um, what's the connection to things like depression and anxiety? Um, we want to look into mu- we want we are looking into such a wide array of health factors, uh, cognitive, um, behavioral, social, um, addiction. We're looking at their physical well-being, their mental health mm-hmm. response. We're looking at really the whole person uh, for their long-term wellness outcomes and trying to see if some of these issues like concussions when they were playing sports, amongst many other things, may be contributing factors to outcomes that are 5, 10, 15, or 30 years later. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think obviously knowing those things helps inform the process of change, right? You have to understand it before you can really address it in a proper way. Yeah. I would think the other piece of this or one of the other big pieces of it is identity, right? In terms of, you know, even if somebody comes out of sport, even a football player and their health is pristine, they didn't have any concussions, which is probably a hard thing to do nowadays, not to get away without a concussion, but they're in pretty good health and they come out the other side and they retire and they move on. But there's still this identity piece, which is what I see a lot more of in my practice, you know, even at the younger ages where sport is such a big part of a young person's identity that if it's not going the way they want it to, or ultimately they're forced out of it because of performance or injury or whatever reason, coping with that can be really, really hard. So can you talk about sort of the identity component of the transition process in the study? Yeah, you very accurately bring up three of what I consider the main drivers of a very difficult transition out of sport, uh, although they're not the only drivers. Right. Um, that's having what we refer to as identity foreclosure, where it's singularly focused on their sport and their um, their their thought of self as an athlete only. Um, and then the second thing you brought up is uh, disappointment in their career uh, results, feeling like they did not accomplish what they really hoped for as an athlete. And then the third thing you brought up is feeling like they had no control over how their end of career came about, either injury or deselection or bad luck, uh, you know, something uh, shuts down their ability to move their career forward and they lose the ability to choose. Um, (coughs) All of those are immensely important. And you could make the argument that 
some of it starts with identity. Um, but I, the, the example I like to use for people who never really competed in sport is imagine that you always wanted to be a, I don't know, pharmacist. All through high school, you study so that you can go to the best college. When you're at college, you completely commit yourself to being able to get the best possible grades. You get into pharmacy school, if there is, in fact, such a thing. Um, and then you finally arrive, and six months into working as a pharmacist, you know, the little bell rings. Someone walks in and says, I'm sorry, but you can't do this anymore. Uh, not just here, but anywhere ever again, and you're just going to have to do something else. And I think that illustrates what that moment might be like. Um, you don't just get to choose when you retire, which for many of us in our careers can be in our 60s uh, if we so choose. Um, instead, you're in your 20s, having really committed everything to this one pursuit, it's a profound shock. Uh, and the amount of time that athletes put into their craft far exceeds the work that I put into getting my PhD, I'm embarrassed to say. Um, so they're really hardworking and committed. Uh, and so what happens then is why so many people struggle with that transition because you can understand why the business of sport and also the nature of the way that sport operates itself really pressures young people to make it their entire identity. It takes a strong person to at the same time value their education or value their other types of interests or pursuits because where's that time really coming from? That might be true in the United States where we have the educational pathway for dual career, uh, where collegiate athletes also get an education. But it's even worse in um, Europe, for instance, where a lot of their athlete development occurs in clubs or programs that are outside of the educational environment. And many athletes feel like they're dissuaded from pursuing education and mm -hmm. vocational interests while they're at those academies. Uh, and for them, it's even worse uh, because then they're left without training or credential. Um, and that's, to me, the, the fallacy or fault of the business of sport, which is really exclusively geared towards making money. Yeah. Uh, and... You can understand it. The word business is in there. Yeah. Well, I think, and and I think you, that point, you know, cascades now all the way down to the youth level. Mm -hmm. Right. And so what I see in my work is most of my work is with young people between 12 and 22, call it. And 12 is probably on the low end, but there's a lot of, <clears throat> what I would deem to be perfectionism at some on some spectrum of there's so much time and energy now put into sport, even at that youth level, that it's such a big part of their lives. And there's so much money spent, which 
the kid might not know how much money is being spent exactly, but they know mom and dad are spending a lot of money and they know that mom and dad are spending a lot of time and they know that there's a lot of exposure and eyeballs on them to perform. And now all of a sudden you've created a mini professional athlete when they're really just kids who are supposed to be going to school, having a good time and playing sport for enjoyment, you know, and, and that's not to say there aren't young people who are on an elite track that, you know, are going to be practicing and investing more than others. That's always been the case, but now it's like almost everybody is training like an elite athlete and they're not. And so what does that do? What does it do to the, the person, right? What does it do to the person who, you know, maybe only thinking that sport is the one path and, you know, education or any other, you know, livelihood or any other pursuit is not worth it, you know? And that, I think that that's a really troubling thing for me because I see a lot of it firsthand. Yeah. The, the professionalism of youth sport, uh, I think is very problematic for a lot of reasons. You see it in arenas out other than sport as well. The one that I'll see it in is music, for Mm -hmm. instance. Um, so it's not just in sport, but that's been a more recent phenomenon. And, I think there's very good argument to suggest that if what you're trying to do is build a elite level athlete when they're in their 20s, you're actually working counter to your purpose because the number of kids who burn out or have overuse injuries uh, is is quite substantial. And I mean, how long does a person really need to swim? In, in order to be ready to, for the Olympic trials when they're in their 20s? I don't know the answer to that question, but I can't imagine it starts when you're nine years old. Um, and a lot of the coaches are asking for between 20 and 30 hours where you can't miss practices or there are consequences. Many of these meets occur on weekends. Uh, it's, it's, an, it's an absorbing family and child commitment, and even if it's driven by the child, which to me is essential, if you're going to do something like that, the kid agree more. has to be the motivational driver. But even in those circumstances, I feel what you lose is what you referenced previously. It's really building this robust identity that is aware of multiple sports, other types of recreational um, hobbies, things like music and art and travel and reading, uh, you know, just being able to diversify your exposure Mm -hmm. so that as an adult, you have not just this narrow, deep channel of profound knowledge and capability, but kind of like a, a, a wide stream of knowledge and interests. So that when it comes to your identity as an adult, finding out where to commit your time, you're able to do that from a place of knowledge. You know, you've played an instrument, you've done crafting, you've worked at a restaurant or in fast food. Uh, You've you've done enough things where you can make a wise choice. Yeah, you've lived your life, right? You know, and it's not in a vacuum and it's not. No, you've tried a lot of hats on. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I, you know, I always, 
I, not that I always bring it back to my own personal situation, but I always try to sort of put it into perspective. I mean, I have young children, they're teenagers or preteen and with their involvement in sport, it's very expensive. It's time consuming. And you also have the, the emotional element of seeing potential in a child, right? Whether it's my son or my daughter and fighting the urge to push them to do more because of it's what I think that they should be doing versus saying, Hey, what I try to say to my kids, particularly my son is say, you can do whatever you want. I'm not going to try to persuade you either way, but just know that there's a consequence to it, right? If you don't put in more time or energy, then it's probably going to be reflected in the performance and the results. And I think, but a lot of times that's not the approach. It's like, Hey, you need to do this or else. And then there's a pressure and an expectation on a child that, hey, you need to keep going with this because you can get to here, right? Mm-hmm. And that would be great. You know, any parent wants to see their child succeed, but at the same time, very few athletes succeed. And then we're pushing them all at the same rate, not really being aware of the fact that, hey, like there's probably in some cases more harm than good being done in this process. Yeah, I mean, I have a couple of thoughts from what you yeah. said, uh, you know, some of it is how do people frame the intention of why their kids are in sport? Is it to create little Olympians or mm-hmm. is it for them to enjoy what I think personally is, I mean, in my mind, sport is is probably one of the single best environments for child rearing when it's done appropriately because every valuable lesson in maturation and building a good citizen and a, a independent, capable person who is compassionate and a contributor and community-minded can come from sport when it's done well. Um, so, you know, I, I, and it's important to understand that I love sport as its essence, but you have to stop and think, all right, is that my motivation? Uh, am I, do I see sport as a venue for the well-being, growth, development of my child, or am I trying to create a little Olympian? Um, and what is the coach trying to do? Um, what is what is the value system that is being displayed in how you are going about coaching my child? Um, and those are important questions to ask yourself as a parent, but also to ask the coach who is uh, working with your kid, because there is absolutely nothing wrong with recreational participation. Um, In fact, I would say that there's an immense amount right about recreational participation. Um, It's kind of like sandlot play. Um, There's something to also be said for trying to find your best possible performance and working to see what you can achieve at your highest potential. That's also great. But it's also not for everyone, everything, or every situation. Yeah. I, I think, you know, the, what, what I couldn't help but thinking about is sort of the element of emotion, right? Because the way you described it, I think, was quite eloquent, and I think it was very objective, right? And so I think what happens is when emotion is injected into those situations, and I think about it from the parent-child dynamic, even the most knowledgeable 
an objective parent still becomes emotional. I could speak from personal experience. They still get emotional about their child's participation in sport and their performance, right? So sometimes that clouds the judgment. Um, and the same for coaches, right? Coaches might have their child's best interest at heart, but then you get into the heat of competition or you're trying to win games so you can get a better job, right? This, these, this is my plug from, I guess, mental skills training, which is to say every parent probably needs some dose of awareness about how people are motivated, children are motivated, um, and to understand that the means of communication is critical in terms of how, when, where, et cetera. And for the child, for them to not only understand and have coping mechanisms and have someone to talk to who's outside that process objectively and not emotional, um, like you or I, but also teaching them about empathy, right? Teaching them about the fact that life is such that you're going to be put into situations that are uncomfortable, that sometimes you have no control over. And the people you're dealing with, while you may not like it, have motivations there of their own. And if you can put yourself into that person's shoes as a young person, the sooner you can do that, the better you're better off you're going to be to move forward into your life, whether it's sport or any other area to know like, Hey, I don't like what this person's doing, but I kind of get why it's happening. And so what, what are my choices? Do I let them keep doing it or do I stand up and advocate for myself? Right. This sort of process of advocate, self-advocacy as a young athlete, rather than standing aside and letting someone dictate for you, because even though you're a young person doesn't mean you don't, you're not entitled to your own opinion or your own, you know, defense of yourself in that process. And yeah. I think a lot of people miss that and, and it's not their fault. It's just a lack of awareness. And sometimes it's frankly a lack of resources. And I get that too. It's not a perfect system. Yeah. I think there's a lot of truth to what you said. Um, you know, what I'll add to it is I think a lot of the time parents either aware or unaware are vicariously yes. competing through their children and they can be t quite terrible. Uh, if you want the opportunity to feel really awful, sit in the stands of some of these um, uh, little league football games and listen to the way that parents talk about the other children it's like they are, um, I mean, this is, it's dehumanizing to even use this reference. Uh, it's like they're watching show dogs that they're betting on. And I, I mean, it's really, it can be a very ugly circumstance. And uh, the level of competitiveness that exists in these parents that they're then feeding off onto their children um, can be quite destructive. And I don't know that I tend to see a lot of those parents. Um, I tend to see the parents, in my experience, who are more aware of the damage that can be done in these highly competitive environments, and they want their kids to feel supported. Mm -hmm. so I think I tend... I, it, a lot of the time I don't feel like I have access to the parents who are of the mentality that I'm speaking of. They wouldn't come in and talk to someone like me because they know what they would hear. Right. So that's actually a really um, interesting point. And it's sort of a coincidental. My, I had a conversation this morning with somebody and I was telling them about 
what I do. And we were talking about what she does for a living. And um, she said, you must come across a lot of micromanaging dads. And I said, truthfully, I don't because the people who come to see me have self-selected. They understand that they've sort of reached their limits and capabilities of being able to help their child. And so they're deferring to an, a quote unquote expert to help them manage that process and give their child this resource and outlet. Whereas the parents, you know, I mean, listen, do I get parents who come to me and are really focused on the performance side of it? And that if the results aren't there, then, you know, then it's, it's my fault once in a while. Um, but they're probably not the best clients anyway, because they're just not open to change. And some of the children are like that. They're the young people not open to change. And that's, that's okay. But to your point, right? I think those people that you were describing that example, they're not the ones who are open to the process of, you know, sports psychology and mental performance coaching because they, that you, they know deep down inside. And I, I think what I see is not such an extreme example. I, I see more of, it's almost like, it's just like town gossip. You know, that's kind of the way I describe it, talking about different other people. Mm-hmm. And I had a, re- a recent experience, you know, of, of my own personally with my own daughter. And I was at a game. She was playing soccer and uh, I used to coach her. I coached the team for a bit. So I know a little bit about soccer, but I'm not an expert by any means. And I was sort of giving her instruction from the sideline. And she turned to me at one point and she said, Dad, she's like, I have a coach. She's like, <laughs> you're not the coach. So zip it. And I was like, she got me. You know, like I knew she was right, you know, and, and, uh, I told her after the fact, I was like, listen, I'm, I'm sorry. You were right. Like I shouldn't have said anything, you know, you know what you're doing. You have a coach. I know better. And I still did it anyway, which sort of speaks to my emotional, you know, my, my parenting, you know, I'm, I'm feeling this like, you know, just like it's shaking my insides cause she's not doing what I think she's supposed to be doing. And that's a reflection of me, like this whole, like mental breakdown, you know, if somebody knows, but is, is succumbing to the emotion. But then after the fact, you know, recently we're walking off the field together and she was saying something about one of her teammates, you know, sort of making a comment about their level of play. And I said, well, you have a coach and the coach is coaching them and they're doing the best they can. So like, maybe you need to kind of cool it on, you know, the commentary and I kind of got her and she knew what I was talking about, but it goes both ways. Right. And I think it's a culture, you know, there's just, and it's some of it's human nature, I think, but it's a culture in sports. Like it's so competitive that we're always comparing ourselves to the next person and we want to make ourselves feel better. Or we think that that person's maybe holding a team back rather than looking at the person and saying that person's doing their best. Let's help them get better so they can be better and help us. Like it's more of this like sort of like push down mentality so I can look better. And I, to me, like I just, as a coach, because I've coached kids, you know, in that capacity as a volunteer. And like, I just don't stand for that. Like you don't push other people down. They're doing the best they can with what they have. Let's try to elevate them, right? Let's try to make them feel better about themselves rather than, you know, hitting them on the head and telling them they stink. You know, it's not, it's not productive. No, I, I, I think it speaks to the difficult dichotomy that coaches have to navigate, Mm -hmm. which is on the one hand, you have to look at your roster like it's a chessboard. um, And what can I do with these pieces um, to maximize winning because my job depends on it. Um, I didn't, I didn't take a job all the way out in Iowa 
uh, and move my family here so that I could be the nice guy and then get fired after a bad season. Um, Mm -hmm. So you, you don't winning, winning for coaches is, is sometimes a matter of whether or not you eat. Um, But on the other hand, I think you have to be very cognizant and aware of your athletes and helping them to grow and to nurture them. And I think you can do those things simultaneously, but sometimes it includes making very, very hard decisions when you're at the highest level. Um, And I think if you can be empathetic in that process, the athletes understand. They do. Even though it's very, very hurtful, they understand. Um, But it's – it's a sad state of affairs. No one wants to give that news. Well, well, I think you, and I think that last point that no one wants to, I think the for me, it seems that perhaps the biggest element in all of this, which we haven't really talked about to a certain extent is, is communication, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you're an athlete, you hear things that you don't want to hear often and you kind of build up a thick skin, right? You build up a resilience because you know, that's kind of part of the deal is a risk and reward game, right? You're, you're putting in an investment that you don't know is going to pay off. So you kind of get used to that. And I, I think, I mean, I'll tie it back to retirement and transition in a bit, but like, like with the athletes I work with, I've had a couple of college level division one athletes that I work with individually who've come to me about situations with coaches where they're not, they were disappointed with something that happened, say. Mm -hmm. And I say, well, do you know why that happened? And they're like, no, I don't know why that happened. And I said, what would it be like to go talk to your coach and ask them, right, why they did what they did or why this is happening? And I'm like, do you think you could do that? And they're like, yeah, I think I could do it, you know, because I do the same thing with them. I say, listen, your coach is getting paid to win games, right, or win races. And you know, they've got not only you, but they've got a whole team of you and assistant coaches and they've got recruiting and they've got PR and they've got administration compliance. Like they wear that a thousand hats. Like you're not the only person on the earth, you know? And so if you're not happy with something that's going on, like, could you go talk to them? Yes. So in all of the instances that I've had this conversation, when they come back to me, I said, well, how do you feel? And the universal answer is relief. Like, yeah. no, I didn't like what I heard necessarily, but at least I know. So now I could understand and do something about it. And I think the lack of communication, if you tie it back to the retirement processes, am I getting honest feedback from the people around me about whether or not this is really going to happen? Right. Yeah. You know, is this going to come to an end because I just don't have it or people telling me things that they want me to hear or to keep me motivated? Or are they telling me things that they want me to hear because they're deluded, you know, or they're uninformed about what's next? Right. Like if you're getting honest information, as much as that might hurt, that's going to inform your decisions. And I think there's a lack of preparation in any transition, whether it's from high school to college, college to pro, and then, you know, any, anybody going out. I think there's just a lack of information. Well, I, I think a lot of, um, a lot of kids are simply thrown into the next stage mm-hmm. with no real clear understanding of the fact that it's even going to be hard. Right. I, I think that there's a lot of apprehension <laughs> about it, but I don't know that any of them are simply sat down. It wouldn't even take that long and just have someone, for instance, like ourselves say, so this is what it's going to be like when you first go to college. <laughs> and just that 
awareness of what to expect and that it's going to be hard, uh, like you said, just simply communicating so that they know in advance or that they know what's going on, they feel Mm -hmm. a little bit of a greater sense of control. I think you're right that if people were much more effective and honest communicators, it would go a long way. I'll add one wrinkle to that observation, which is sometimes coaches deliberately lie to their athletes. Um, In fact, I would make the argument that it happens quite a bit you have a third uh, you have your third man off the bench. He's probably not going to get a lot of playing time, but you don't want him to transfer to another school because if you lose a couple of your first stringers, then he's your first man off the bench, and you want that depth of talent. So maybe you give him false hope to keep him on the roster because you don't want to tell him the truth and have him transfer and leave. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, there's, there's, again, I'll sort of repeat what I said before. The business of sport mm-hmm. is really, it's not about making people happy. It's about money. Um, it, and, and whether that money is the prestige of a university or ticket sales or merch sales, um, the people who are in it at the highest level, they have a lot of competing interests. But at the end of the day, they would love to take care of all of the people. But if they're not making money, then they're not going to be long lived in their role. Yeah. So, I, I, so in 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 the tying it back to the study, what do you? What is your sense of? The, what, is this, what is your sense of the things that potentially could be done to address some of those issues related to the business of sport or just as people move through? Like, what do you think can be done to help support that process of moving up and through the ranks? Yeah. So um, in terms of the transition out of sport, mm-hmm. which is really our focus, because okay. quite a bit of attention is already paid to trying to help athletes advance through other transitions because they're really motivated to get them to succeed. Um, If they struggle, you hope that there's some services there. Although now that I say that, I realize that that's not always or often the case. In the transition out of sport, my opinion is it really wouldn't take much. It takes a certain amount of attention, Mm -hmm. a certain amount of early intervention and awareness and a certain amount of money. And it's really not that much when you think about what most sports bring in. Um, might be as much as just having a handful of people that are hired by the league mm-hmm. to communicate with people on every team early enough that you can start this process of awareness, preparation, uh, developing support systems, knowing what those are, connecting mm-hmm. people uh, to resources, thinking about things that they can do while they are competing that can help them to yeah. already start to identify where they might allocate their time, their resource, their energy when they're no longer competing at the highest level. 
rather than having this fall off a cliff experience Mm -hmm. where you go from, let's just use an example of someone who is exceptionally well-known. You go from being on everybody's Twitter feed, everyone wondering what you're eating for lunch before. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Sometimes it's hours or days later where no one cares. And all the structure goes, all of the attention goes, Mm -hmm. nobody is helping you organize anything, that should not be a shock. They should know to expect that in advance and already have in their mind, what can I look look forward to when this is no longer the thing I do every day? So I can already think about what's next for me. Yeah. I I mean, listen, I think it's, it's, it's a, absolute truism that retirement comes for everybody, right? At some point. So knowing that, right. And acknowledging that, you know, what, what is the risk in talking about it and, you know, resourcing around it and having that conversation well before it's scheduled to happen, because at least you're being realistic and you're preparing yourself. It's, you know, in one of my earlier episodes, I think I may have mentioned this to you in our offline conversation before this, um, one of the, one of my guests, uh, I think it was ep- so episode 15, Daryl Stinson talks about it. He played football at Central Michigan. And Daryl tells a story like it was NFL or bust. And, mm. you know, I'm going to the NFL. And like, that was it, right? From day one, high school, whatever. Like that was the big, and then he got hurt. And he yeah. was like severely injured to the point where he had to retire. His back was just like, right? And so the next three or four years were, very, very dark for him because he didn't really have a purpose. And he, you know, the way he describes it in the podcast is until he found another purpose in his life, that wasn't, it wasn't until then that he was able to truly move forward and start building something new. But that didn't happen. That happened. He fell off the cliff and had to like get to the bottom before he picked himself up. Right. So why does somebody have to get to the bottom in order to pick themselves up. Right. And there's yeah. a lot in that. We could talk about that a lot, but like, it's the truth, right? If you start to prepare them and just yeah. build a little bit of awareness and give them a little bit of resources, right. You're probably reducing the odds that there's going to be a fall off the cliff effect when they retire. Yeah. I think there's a couple of things that hold back systems. One of them is just change. Uh, yeah. I think systems are very resistant to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they have a, they, they, there's like a momentum to keeping things the same. And the other is fear of distraction. I think there's this worry that, well, I mean, if we start talking about your career in philanthropy, you know, maybe you won't work as hard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we want you singularly focused on being a football player. Anything else you think about will act as a distraction. When the truth is actually the opposite. People aren't supposed to think about one thing 24-7. And getting a little bit of space from that actually mm-hmm. keeps them fresh when they go back to thinking about it. Right. Um, and it actually nurtures their whole person and makes them even better when they're focusing. Uh, so that, you know, that's, that's one part. The other part that I found is that athletes who reach the highest level of their sport are kind of compulsive and a little bit OCD yeah. by nature. For sure. How else does somebody spend two hours for three straight weeks putting? I mean, right. That is right. 
wasn't for a sport, you would look at them and think they're crazy, like you need medication for this. So there's a little bit of compulsiveness, I think, to every athlete who reaches the apex of a single sport because we're kind of, we're not meant to do something that much. Um, And so they're in a way wired and also encouraged to narrowly focus their identity. That's why I say it's sort of a special athlete who doesn't allow that to happen because the gravity well, I think, pulls them towards this singular identity. Blaming the athlete, I think, is inappropriate. I think that the culture around sports pulls for it. And that's why we need the systems themselves to change the way they go about doing it. These are kids. They do what they're told as much as they, you know. Yes. They don't know any better and can't be really expected to. It's the system that has to create the change that allows improvement. Uh, we can't expect the athletes to do it or blame them for the fact that it happens. I think that's a really interesting point. And I think it does apply in the world that we work in, right? You know, you you know, you could try to change the system, and that's noble, right? Like, but I think for me personally, it's I know this is the system especially when there's money involved, like people are just going to gravitate to that because that's human nature. So Mm -hmm. how do we then create betterment within that system so that it's not as destructive? Yeah. So here's my pitch for the study. You know, the answer to that is knowledge and fan awareness. Um, you, You have to have information that means something to people. And that happened, for instance, with CTE. And then there has to be a large enough groundswell of stakeholder awareness that this is an important issue to consider. Mm -hmm. Our retired athletes are dying and suffering at a rate that is much higher than the general population. And people need to know that and know specifically how it's happening and what we can do about it. And then systems do change. But there has to be a very strong and compelling reason, mostly because the people who hold the purse strings, I think many of them want to care. Maybe they're not quite entirely sure how. But if I were them, I would feel a very strong investment to keep things the same. Sure. It's working for me. Yeah. Listen, I think that's well said. And I think it is, it goes back to me, it goes back to the empathy point, which is to say like people do things for a reason. If you understand why they're doing it, it doesn't, you don't have to be happy about it, but it's a lot easier to make sense of it and then take appropriate action around it rather than, you know, resisting it and, you know, swearing at that and saying you should be different. Well, that's just not the way it's going to be, right? So, mm-hmm. I think it is important, and I think the more knowledge we have, the better. So, if I'm I'm looking at your website, so it's athletetransitionstudy.com, right? And you can, from that launch point on the home page, take the survey, um, which anyone who has played at the elite level and is retired for more than three months, so you can be retired for three months, three years, thirty years. Uh, as long as you competed at the collegiate level or higher in any sport, uh, you can take the survey. And for people who never competed at the elite level, we also have a questionnaire for you because we want to know how athletes are doing compared to the typical population. But the website also has more information about the transition experience. There's a list of resources. There's information about the people who are leading the study. 
If you want to share a little bit about your specific experience in transition, we have a Your Story page uh, where we publish. It's not That is not confidential. The questionnaires are confidential. Uh, but your story will be put out on the website if you want to share your experiences. Um, and we, we are really hoping to get as many of you as possible to donate your time, share your wisdom. And our intention is to use that to the best of our ability to create change moving forward. Excellent. Yeah, so if anyone's listening and knows someone who is an athlete or if you're an athlete yourself, please make the investment of the 20 or 25 minutes to contribute to this very important um, piece of research. So um, as we wrap up, Dan, I'll, I'll ask you the last question that I ask everybody framed different ways for different people. But if, if you had to give one piece of advice to a transitioning athlete or retiring athlete, what would that piece of advice be? Mm, one piece of advice, huh? You sure you don't have an hour and a half? <laughs> I think that the best advice I can give is don't do it alone. Um, reach out to your support systems. Uh, allow people to help, to talk, to spend time with you. Share. You know, open up with the people who care and be open to reaching out to programs and people who really want to be there for you, you'll be able to tell who those people are by the way they respond. Um, if you call up your ex-coach and they're really dismissive, uh, don't keep knocking on that door. Um, we're looking into who the most valuable resources are for people. Generally, it's family, romantic partners, um, past teammates, uh, but there's also a lot of programs that are created by ex-athletes like yourself, and they really do want to be there to help, to help you find a new career, to help you connect to other people with similar circumstances, to help you utilize the brand name that you developed as an athlete to your own cause. Um, watch out for the ones that are going to ask you for a big infusion of money on the front. Those are not the ones to really stick with. Many of these are run by just well-meaning athletes who don't want others to go through the tough experience you are. So the one piece of advi advice I'll give is don't do it alone. Open up and share and reach out to people. That's great. And it's a great way to, to finish the conversation. Dan, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and spending the time with me. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. It was very, very, very interesting. Mike, thank you so much for the platform and thanks to all of your listeners. Thank you. So, what was your biggest takeaway from my conversation with Dr. Daniel Zimmett? For me, it's that we must truly understand the elite athletes exit from sport in order to serve them properly. Athletes lose a critical part of their identity when they retire and the potential long-term mental health consequences are significant. Investing in the athlete transition study is a small price to pay for a potentially huge payoff. My suggestion to elite athletes and their loved ones is to share your story. You are not alone. All athletes, elite and non-elite alike, can struggle after they leave sport. Without the proper help, the transition out of sport can be extremely difficult. Share your story with a friend or trusted professional. I want to thank Dan for his kind generosity and the wisdom he shared with the Freshman Foundation community. 
You can learn more about the Athlete Transition Study on their website at athletetransitionstudy.com, as well as on Instagram and Twitter at Athlete Transition Study. To learn how mental performance coaching can help your mind work for you rather than against you, visit michaelvhuber.com. Thank you for listening. We'll see you back soon for episode 47. Mike Huber is the founder and owner of Follow the Ball Coaching, located in Fairhaven, New Jersey. He is a mental performance coach and business advisor dedicated to serving athletes just like you reach their full potential on and off the court. The Freshman Foundation is all about helping you get to the next level. For more information, follow along on Instagram at The Freshman Foundation. Please subscribe. Give us a like on iTunes, Spotify, leave a review, tell a friend. Most importantly, come back in two weeks. Ready to get better.